0: This week, I think what we'll do is something a little bit um, rather uncharacteristic, I suppose. You know, generally, I don't like to go into the realm of speculation. And even today, we'll have to just limit ourselves in terms of the speculation to what's appropriate in the sense of learning more lessons from it, rather than to go to pure speculation. There's always a danger that when you get into speculative areas, you tend to become um, too caught up with your current situation. And as a result, some of the material that, you're, that you think is so right becomes very dated when you look back at it later on. Usually I don't think we've had that problem. We've generally tended to discuss things and learn about things. And whatever lessons we draw from it are of uh, eternal nature, and therefore they don't become so dated. Probably you could go back to this stuff years later. So we'll try to keep it in more in the realm of um, lessons that could be derived from it in terms of our, our situation, our times. Talking about Mashiach, and the Gemara does bring down some of the signs. Um, we're not going to go into the signs that are, you know, in terms of actual uh, times and and all kinds of, you know, to give a chronology of events actually leading up to Mashiach. But if you remember from the last two weeks, when we had the the idea as to why Mashiach is really one of the Yud Gimel because although among certain circles segments of Jewry, Mashiach plays a very prominent role in their Mitzvah observance. The Chesam Sofer, on the other hand, as we mentioned, said he doesn't understand why Mashiach should even be part of the It doesn't really belong there. So we used two basic approaches to explain why it should be so, so necessary to have a Mashiach um, belief, at least. You know, the, Gemara, the Gemara calls Mashiach bar son of the fallen. And we mentioned, based on what the Orachlaner says over there, that the nature of the world, the nature of the universe, one of the laws of nature, which we find recurring throughout history as well as throughout nature, is the idea that before things achieve their pinnacle of perfection, it has to go through a process of deterioration and break it apart before it can be built together and be in its perfected state. You see that when you have to plow up a field in order to plant it, before you want to have a beautiful field that looks, you know, you know, nice rows of, of of whatever it is, vegetation. You plow it up. We even refer to the laying of the foundation of the building as the groundbreaking. You break the ground in order to build a building. You take a seed which is which is edible, which is good in its in its present state, but you want to develop it into a future state to a greater form of perfection by making it into a beautiful to blossom forth into a beautiful. Um, stalk of wheat it has to germinate and the process of germination requires a kind of decay process we find this to be true with the human being as well and this by the way is the key to the understanding of the belief in (laughs) really, because the human being came into this world and as a result of the imperfections which came about through sin our body and our soul do not work in the harmony that they're meant to work in therefore you need a process of a of what Death comes into the world as a result of sin. Death breaks things apart, and it's almost like being planted, you know, the expression that they always use, you know, you plant them in the ground. But that's really what happens, because we then come forth in a greater glory and in a greater sense of perfection at Tachiyas Mason So Tachiyas Mason is really this, this cyclical pattern of perfection where one level achieves a greater level of perfection as a result of the decay of the previous level. We then took it to the next step, which was, the idea of why the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed, where we say, where Hashem says that I will rebuild the fallen house of David. That's why Mashiach is called Ba'an Afli. And I will build it for eternity the way it was intended before creation. In order to have a Beis HaMikdash that's going to permanently remain, you have to have a process of destruction of the previous Beis HaMikdash. This, of course is also the key to understanding what the entire universe is all about. As Jews, we have a tradition that the world is only going only to exist for a certain amount of years, 6,000 years, or whatever. And then there's going to be a period a 1,000 years or 2,000 years of desolation and destruction. Why? In order that the cycle should continue where there's a recreated world in a greater form of perfection. So the same way there's to the human being, there's a sense of to the entire universe. This becomes a very important uh, factor in understanding the nature of how the whole cosmos operates, where you have these cyclical patterns of, an ev- of a spiritual evolution, where the second stage becomes a greater form of perfection than the first one. As a result, we could then see what the process of redemption is all about. Redemption is part of this pattern, that before you have Mashiach come in the state of Go'ula, you have to have a, se- a series of destructions of Go'lus and goals then becomes a preparatory phase for Gaula, just like the death, Churban HaOlam, Churban Beis etc., is the same pattern that recurs. With this we can understand why Mashiach is called Bar Nafli, and that's why we say, and in that sense, Dovra HaMelech's own personal life shows us that. Yehuda, with Tamar, Dovra HaMelech, and Ba'sheva again revealed to us this idea that human beings have a way of achieving a greater form of perfection as a result of downfalls than what we would have otherwise suspected. This, by the way, is how, in terms of this week's parsha, is very apropos. That's the way Ratzon the Kakoin learns this week's parsha. Um, Rashi, the very first Rashi, points out that Va'yichy is unusual in the fact that there is no um, separation between Va'yigash and Va'yichy. It's called a parsha stuma. So Rashi says, "No more parshas of wise than a parsha so Rashi says that upon the death of Yaakov, the eyes of the um, or the Jewish people in general became, became closed up, so to speak. As a result, that was the beginning of the tribulations of the exile, of the period of exile. Although the physical exile wasn't there at this point yet, nevertheless, there seems to have been some sort of a, uh, of a of a ghost that began upon the death of Yaakov Venus Venus, Stuma. Then Rash says, another pshat, kates, Yaakov wanted to reveal the end of days. Yaakov seemed to have been privy to understanding when the case is going to be. None of us are privy to Nobody knows. People make predictions, but none of us know. And Yaakov seemed to have been privy, but even he lost it. Nistami who was closed off from him. Yaakov did not know when the case was. Even he was on the verge of understanding it, seemed to have lost it. Those are the two pshatim that, that Rashi says. Rav Tzadok adds a third pshat. He says that the purpose of stumos and, and rather, the purpose of Pashios in the Torah, where you have the pays and the samachs, is to uh, give pause to contemplate. Moshe Rabbeinu was given pause to contemplate the previous lesson that Hashem taught him. I don't know how much time he was given, because he had to learn everything in 40 days. So he couldn't have had all that much time. But he was given a few seconds, a few moments, to contemplate the lesson he was just taught. This lesson, he was not to contemplate. Which lesson is that? Says precisely the one we just talked about. It ends off, vaigash that Jews are in They become increased. They, they grab onto the klipas They become entrenched in the nakedness of the land of of Egypt, the the most morally degenerate, corrupt land. And then immediately says, Vaichi Yaakov been Mitzrayim. Yaakov now reaches the pinnacle of his life in Golos, in Mitzrayim. It's a concept known as Tzadikim B'Avli that Hashem says that the Tzaddikim produced more in a state of Chorbin than they did in a state of Binyan. Jewish people produced more in Bavel. Talmud B'Avli supersedes Talmud Yerushalmi although B'Avli was in Golos and Talmud Yerushalmi was created in Eretz Yisrael. There seems to be some sort of a law of nature that You could achieve a greater degree of perfection precisely at this point of downfall, and you come to a higher level. What's the secret of that? Why is that so? We don't know. That's the nature of the world. Moshe Rabbeinu himself, who achieved 49 levels, we know, missed out on one level. The 50th level he didn't have, yes. Right, Jews build. There's a theoretical lesson over here as well. And Moshe Rabbeinu did not know all 50 gates of wisdom, only 49. This already involves the fiftieth, because this deals with the nature of the entirety of, of, of how Hashem runs the world. Why it is that Mashiach comes out of Yehuda the out of Dovid is a mystery which we can't really. Was it Churchill's what? Uh, mystery wrapped in enigma or something like that? Is this something that matters? It's one of those kind of things that's it's shrouded in the, in the deepest secrets of the universe. So. That's what the says. Moshe Ben was not able to contemplate it. The truth is, when you think about it, all three pshatim are very, very related. It's a parasha stuma because the golus began. It's a parasha stuma because the geula that Yaakov wanted to reveal was hidden away. And the two tied together, it seems that there's some sort of a linkage between the beginning of the Golas and the geula, and Yaakov was not able to understand that. He wasn't able to be Keshla lagal Sakates. What is it about the Cates that brings this about? It's a mystery. Why it is that Golus and Gu'ula seem to be an outgrowth, one of the other, is something that Yaakov wasn't able to contemplate, as we see Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't able to. That's why Yaakov lost it. So that's what the Gemara says, Mashiach is barnafli. At a time when there is a degeneracy, and it seems beyond hope, that's when Mashiach springs out. It springs at a time of decay, of a matzv of barnafli. So, this one approach that we have from the Orach Neir is that it's a force in nature; that it's in the nature of things that geula springs from a sukhas davenan lefals. The churban seems to be a precursor of the um, of the geula. and we produce more as a result than otherwise. So, precisely because Mashiach is the final act in the history, in the panorama, in the theater of the world. Therefore, before that final act, you have the barnafoli, you have the generations that seem to be at the lowest ebb. And from that springs forth the gula. We mentioned another aspect, and maybe that's why it's important to keep Mashiach in mind, which is the fact that as a result, that as a result of the fact that um, Hashem is sort of like telling us there's always hope. Don't give up hope. That's the lesson that we said Two lessons ago from the Beno Lot, Not to be Miyaish, not to give up hope, to realize that it never reaches the point where there's no return. There's no such thing as the point of no return. And that's why we find Khiskia saying over, I have a tradition greater than the prophecy of Yeshaya Novi. I have a tradition from my great grandfather David because David Allah of course represents Ba That Khev Al even if you have a sword about to slice through your neck and the edge is already there you still don't give up hope there's no such thing as too late where there's life there's hope so Mashiach then te- what the Gemara is telling us although it seems at the lowest ebb there's no such thing there's still a hope of redemption and, an, and the knowledge of this can in itself become a self-fulfilling prophecy Hashem imparts this knowledge to us and therefore we don't give up hope and therefore it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy so, maybe that's why it's important to keep in mind what Mashiach is all about. And that's why we have this as one of the Ikrim, because it's a very important part of Yiddishkeit, to know that there is no such thing as no hope, and there is always return. Dovah the Melech teaches us what Shuvah is, Yehuda taught us what Shuvah is, and Mashiach, in that sense, really is a form of Shuvah. As a result of this, we can now try to go into understanding what the Gomorrah is trying to then say when it talks about the signs of Mashiach. As we pointed out last time, the Gomorrah like, if Yaakov Avinu did not know when Mashiach comes, then nobody knows. If the secret of when Mashiach is going to be wasn't given over to Yaakov Avinu to be revealed, no one will ever be able to do it. Daniel was told it's a closed book. So therefore one has to always understand that what the Gomorrah is saying is it's almost like trying to peer through clouds and clouds and pick up certain signals of Mashiach but because no one knows the way it's going to turn out it's all the realm of speculation but the Rambam as we'll see I don't know if we're going to even get to tonight but the Rambam says that even the Nevim did not have a clear uh, perspective on what uh, the the nature of the events of Mashiach are going to be so therefore a lot of the stuff that you're going to see can be done somewhat differently what the Gemara then is trying to really give us is a certain flavor of the society that Mashiach grows in. Not in the sense that you need this and this and this order, in order that then Mashiach is going to come. But that, as we mentioned last week, Bar-Nafli, what is the situation of the society that will lead to a How far down does this moral decay and decadence go before Mashiach will come. How far down does it go? And let's take a look at some of the things that the Gemara says. One thing that's not in the Gemara in Sanhedrin over here, although it's a theme that recurs throughout Mashiach, mentioned in this Gemara as well as in the Gemara at the end of Sotah, is the idea of the brazenness of the society. As the Gemara in, in Sotah refers to as chutzpah yasge, there's going to be an increase in Chutzpah. Well, if one wants to maybe make a little play on it, where yasgit also means a dissemination of, or a publication of, there's going to be a a tremendous popularity to a book known as chutzpah. You know, chutzpah yasgit became a very popular book. There's a popularity to chutzpah. It becomes disseminated. Yasgit comes from to be increased, to to move around a lot, to get circulated. There'll be a circulation of chutzpah. There's chutzpah yasgit. Rashi does bring it down over here. Um, if you see the very first Rashi on the right that's underlined is he brings down the Gemara and that says there's going to be a lot of chutzpah and it's, it's strange though chutzpah has always had a bad connotation to it that's the whole point of the Gemara chutzpah was always something that was bad nowadays it's no longer considered bad I mean just our whole society has changed where if you want to name a book you know no one's going to go name a book um, you know bad manners you know, you know nowadays maybe you'll find such a thing you to call a book chutzpah? you know, if, if it has bad connotations it's an indication really of society that we've lost our feeling to the fact that chutzpah is even bad that we even praise it it becomes a virtue I'm not saying that the stuff that I, I didn't read the book I've only heard certain parts of it I'm not saying that the stuff that he writes there is necessarily bad but the fact that he calls it by a title which always had a derogatory uh, a, a bad uh, flavor in Jewish views Jews are modest and They're humble, and they have shame, and they have busha, and chutzpah is just the opposite. So to call a book about Jews chutzpah and praising it and saying we don't have enough of it is in itself an indication of the moral temperament of our society that he even calls it that. So chutzpah, you is going to be a dissemination of um, of chutzpah. Let's go through some of the Gemaras, though. The Gemara says, Tanya, starting from where it's bracketed, Rabbi Yehuda Omer Dorsha ben David Boboy. Beis Havad Yiel Beis Havad. A number of interpretations on Beis Havad, but let's just translate some of the words and just see how clearly we could read it in yesterday's papers practically. Beis Havad, the house of committees. Of assembly. The house of assembly. The house of committees. Havad is also a committee. What? Or like a Senate subcommittee hearing. When you have the Clarence Thomas hearings, and everybody's riveted in the base havad yel is What's the topic of conversation in the base havad that everybody's riveted to in the in the subcommittee hearings or in the these committee or in the assembly znus. Or you know where else it's used base havad? It's either used in reference to you know where people meet. Uh, people meet for you, whether it's general assembly or or subcommittee like Senate Congress, or for that matter courts. You you know, could say in, in, uh, yeah. Have your house it should be like a meeting place for chachamim, but you know you take a court, and you have an entire media circus over there, where, you know, Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia declared the Soviet Empire to be dead. The same day, William Kennedy Smith was in court, and they you know the world is going crazy out there. And the Middle East is having, you know, for the first time in history, the Jews and the Arabs were meeting over here, and that was relegated to page 41. And who knows what's happening with 30,000 nuclear weapons in... Thank in they didn't interrupt the <laughs> <soil>. in, right, <laughs> right. In Russia. Not, not even a bullet Right. Please. But the headlines and on every channel was one thing. What's happening with William Kennedy Smith? Right. Did he or didn't he? Only his hairdresser knows for sure. I mean, you know... That's what everybody was concerned with. I mean, you could, in a sense, say, base Havad, referring to the media itself, is a base Havad. Everybody just gathered together. You had, I mean, enormous sums of money, spent by news agencies, print media, electronic media, radio, television, and broadcasting it throughout the day, whether it was CBS, and the most hush of the places, the base Havad, the court, what was it on? And nobody had any other interest there, other than a prurient interest. There was no other human interest factor over here, right? But it really makes no, I mean, it's a typical rape trial. I mean, these things happen all the time. But every, here's an opportunity to televise it and to hear every little blow-by-blow account of every gory detail. havad is Everybody was watching that television and listening on the radio and everybody, the whole world was focused. To, to the exclusion of everything else that's happening in the world, that's much more important. That everybody will agree is more important. I mean, everybody agrees that the stuff that was happening in those okay. days was <laughs> infinitely of greater importance. But everybody was riveted to base havad yil is nust. That was the topic of conversation. In that sense, you know, right now, Rashi says it's referring to places where people used to go to study. I mean, it's amazing how, if you want condoms now, you go to school. You go to the Beis Havad. yields Nus. They promote Nus. I mean, whoever would have imagined this kind of... Uh okay. Let's go. I want to skip the next one that I have underlined because that one is a very um, interesting one. It has a lot of Pshatim on it. Let's take a look at the third one that I have over there. Ho'emes... Not Pnei. The next one after that. Ho'emes. on the same line. Bohemes oh. Nedaris. Emes MS becomes hidden. In truth becomes, disappears. Truth becomes, disappeared. What does that mean? So the Gemara explains. <laughs> that truth becomes, um, goes into, like, flocks and leaves. And as a result, it disappears. In other words, it flocks together, in different flocks, and then as a result, it leaves. Before I should explain, what does that mean? What that means is that before Mashiach comes, we're going to have a situation where there's going to be many, many movements and sects and everybody's going to claim the exclusive rights on the truth. We have the truth to the exclusion of anybody else. We have the truth. We have the right approach to Yiddishkeit. This approach, I mean, you take a look at all the factions that go on. There's going to be a tremendous amount of factionalism. In other words, it's, it's very interesting, when you look at the Gemara, you could see between the lines a lot of, of other interesting truths. It doesn't tell you that truth is going to disappear merely because it's going to be that truth itself becomes flux. The truth is everybody has a little bit of the truth. But as a result of the factionalism and the divisions that result, you cause truth to disappear. Because in the cloud of all of the conflict, and all of the factions, and all of the sects that you have in Yiddishkeit, we no longer know what the truth is. Yes, yeah, so what is the truth? What's the right approach to Yiddishkeit? What's the way to learn Torah? What's the right halacha even? You can't even get halacha straight. You can't get halacha straight. You can't get das Torah straight anymore. Hashkof is everything. You read this book, it tells you this way. That book tells you this way. And this Hasidus tells you this way. <laughs> another Hasidus. <laughs> Not so this, uh, you're right. It's been like that at other times, but we never knew to what extent it could go to the point of where Everybody's so totally confused that nobody really knows what the right approach is. You have this god, that god, another god. You have so many different things, and truth, because truth divides itself. See, what the Gemara doesn't tell you is that, that because of all of these sects, truth becomes hidden. What happens is that the, the sects themselves do contra- contain kernels of truth. The truth subdivides into so many sects. I mean, th- there's no question that the Yekis have a very important part of Yiddishkeit. Which others don't have, but there's no question that the Litvaks picked up something of Yiddishkeit that nobody else has. Hasidim picked up certain shoots of Yiddishkeit that nobody else has. Modern Orthodox have their, you know, understanding of how Torah and the world meet together. Right wing has their approach, and you know, you know the old joke about uh, the guy that goes to the marriage council with his wife, uh, and here's oh, you're right, uh, here's your side, you're right, says. How can they both be right? You're right? You know, the truth is, you have so much of that going on. You're right, you're right. Everybody's right. But as a result, already, there's an utter state of confusion. The MS becomes fragmented and divided and split into sections and sects and factionalism that as a result, and that's what covers it up and it befogs us and it totally makes uh, truth. We no longer know it anymore. We can't recognize truth anymore. Now I'll just read some of them further. V'sor me ra mishtailil. me What does that mean? Sar me ra Rashi says, A person who's God-fearing and tells people avoid evil is laughed at and thought a fool. You're old-fashioned. You're a prude. Get with it. I mean, I remember I thought of this Gemara, what was it about uh, three weeks ago? when Vice President Quayle got up after this magic Johnson business and they were saying, oh, we got to do this and we got to promote this and we got to have these kind of ads and those kinds of ads on television and we got to promote condoms and everything else. And he got up and he said, you know, what's wrong with abstinence and, and morality? You got to be moral. That's the way to do it. And you should see the laughter that had, they had at him. What a fool. They made such fun of him. We're saying, come on, get with it. You know, we know that's not going to apply anymore. You're telling people to avoid to avoid promiscuity? That's not going to work. You're not with it anymore. You have to be practical. You have to be realistic. Just the other day, uh, I think it was Bush said, whatever it is, and David Dinkins said, we're out to save lives, and it's not going to work anymore. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You're old-fashioned. A person that advocates being Sar ra Sar to avoid evil, to avoid, stay away from bad, bad um character traits and and bad uh, lifestyle and habits is laughed at is thought a fool you're a fool if you say like that and they actually think of you as a fool to what extent is this the first time it happened I don't know but I mean we're able to see new boundaries constantly being you know moved in in these areas you know let's go back a little bit now and discuss the one we missed before. Pnei HaDor. Pnei HaDor, Now this is a very important one. Why do I say that? Because it's brought down in three different Gemaras. It's brought down here, it's brought down a little bit later, it's brought down in Sota. So it seems to me this was universally understood as being something. The face of the generation is going to be like the face of a dog. So Rashi says two Pshatim on this. Rashi says one Pshat is the Damin Mamishlikalif. They're going to actually have dog features. Second shot is a lack of busha. Again, it goes back to the idea of chutzpah, of brazenness, of this lack of shame that people feel. Um, let us try to understand some of it and mention a few other pshat. One point that Eddie mentioned a number of times that we've mentioned is which fits in with Varash is about Mamish. What do you mean Mamish? During the Gulf War, can you imagine, there were 39 occasions where for hours in a row, four million people had to put something on their faces and look like dogs. Mamish, Mamish. Kipnei HaKel of Mamish. 39 times they had to physically do something with themselves where an entire country, I mean, we're talking about Yisrael, the Jewish nation, every single Jew had to do it. The air raid sirens go off and everybody had to live Pnei dog, Pnei They had to have their faces Pnei HaKalav. Not the whole dog, just the face of a dog. So that's Mamish. The second Pshad that Rashi says is a total breakdown of feelings of shame. Of feelings of holding back or of modesty or of anything else that people just are not embarrassed one from another. There's a lack, total lack of embarrassment. Some of the mafushim say that the idea of pnei hador, the face of the generation, one shot on the face of the generation refers to the leadership. Pnei hador, the the leaders of the generation. One shot in that, of course, is very simply that they're going to be without any respect. In words, the same way, dogs lack a sense of modesty and respect. Pnei hador, pnei means that the leadership of the generation is going to be such where people will give him a total lack of respect so they'll be considered like nothing, like, you know, you refer to Talmud Chochem as, a, you know, a guy. The people just, they're considered like a schlepper. You know, a guy that leads the dog, so to speak, you know, the, the, from the dog pound. It's going to be They're going to be with a total lack of respect to them. Are all these adjectives for them, the Jews only, or is this also for general? It's, it's unclear. Probably more refers to the Jews than anything else, but it could be referred to society as a Especially we know that, that Jews are very influenced by the society, unfortunately. a um, lipshot, which I have mentioned at other times, is one which we do see more so probably now than at any other time in terms of leadership. Where Pneador in terms of the general leadership of the generation, is such that people are constantly, leaders are living with poles. They live in poles. Especially now that there's the, the electronic media. Before it wasn't even as bad as it was over the past 20 years. The expression that they always, the muscle that they use, and this is probably true in previous generations as well, but not to the extent that you have it now, which is where the leadership has no backbone in terms of leading the people, but it's like a dog. The dog is straining at the bit, you know, he's like leading you, and looks like he's the boss, he's, you know, you see a guy walk down the street, you ever see the ones where they have these like invisible dog leashes? Or you could make it look like, you know, your dog is schlepping you. But the fact remains that it looks always like the dog is schlepping the person. Even when he's not doing it, the dog is always running ahead and everything else. It looks like the dog is leading the person. Where you get to the Prashas drachen, to the crossroads, the dog will always look back see which way the master is going. The master's going this way, he runs that way. He'll shoot out ahead, you know. Once he knows this is the way, again, he'll look like he's in the lead. He'll always shoot off in the direction where he looks like he's leading them. He wants to pretend to lead but he's always looking back to see which way the wind is blowing. Then he'll shoot out ahead, and say, oh, this is the way I'm going. The generation, you see, now, you're going to say, well, that's democracy. That's not true. That's not democracy. Churchill is also a leader of a democracy. The point of a democracy is that people get together, you elect a leadership, but you want leadership because you trust this individual to lead you, but he has to lead you because of your implicit trust in him. Not where he has so little backbone that he'll turn around OK, is abortion in or is abortion out? Is you know uh, civil rights in or out is busing and uh, you know, desegregation? They're always looking back beyond to see what is popular. What is, which way are the political winds blowing? Pro-condoms, anti-condoms, pro-gay rights against gay rights? Whatever it is, the leaders have lost their back, but we've never had, I don't think, a society where there was no such thing as leaders that are leaders. I mean? We've had democratic leaders, but uh, in the past, the presidents, I mean, whether it was Roosevelt or Truman or Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, you you go back in time, there were leaders, they led, they had their agenda. We elected them because we liked them and their agenda, but then they led whether it was popular or not. Now already, and especially now, it's inevitable because of this electronic media with poll-taking. You have this instant poll-taking where, you know, two weeks ago, Bush will say there was no recession. But now he's reading the polls that his popularity is going down and everybody's saying it's a recession. He says there's a recession. I mean, <laughs> can you imagine he's, he's following the generation, but he wants to run up ahead and say that, okay, there's a recession still. Economic times are bad. Why does he say that? Because everybody's telling him it's bad. Everybody's telling him it's bad, so it's bad. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's unbelievable. Where you have a situation that the leaders no longer lead, it's Pnei hador They're actually just following the winds whichever way they blow, and they're constantly Looking at polls and they' they're, they're leading based on what they' see in the polls. I mean the, the, the hypocrisy and all that obviously is there, but you know you take a look at at uh, people like whether it's Ted Kennedy, you know twenty five years ago he was I've heard some of his speeches from twenty five years ago when they were having Supreme Court nominees and there were liberal nominees then. So he're saying over there that you're not supposed to ask him what their personal opinion is on different things. Now, you know the, the popular thing is, so he goes in the opposite direction. Then he was anti-abortion. Now, a total hypocrisy, whichever way the winds blow, for Israel, against Israel. Take a look at the, the United Nations decision, 111 to 25, to let Israel off the hook. Why? Because it's now popular the other way. All the leaders vote this way. 15 years ago when they voted Zionism is racism, because the public uh, perception was the one way. Everybody does what's popular. Nobody does anymore what they honestly feel. It's There's no leadership. It's like a dog leading the generation. Last week in Pashasmi Miketz, Rashi says that the word pene Ho'oretz refers to the rich people, to the wealthy people. Penei Hador then is understood by many people to refer to the um, wealthy people. Wealthy people in the generation felt the famine. So what does Pneha dor mean? That the rich people are going to become extremely self-centered and stingy. In fact, the, like dogs. Dogs are very stingy, like they'll fight over a bone. So you'll have a pack of rich people descending on this bone and trying to rip it away one from another. Novel HaKarmeli, who is um, considered to be the classical example of of an uncle Scrooge type, classical miser, stingy, selfish, is referred to in the um, in the novi in Shmuel Novi as Hakalbi. He's a cowbi he's like a dog. he's stingy and tight like a dog. Leonardodore Kelv is going to be this tremendous tightness amongst the rich people where they're going to be like dogs. But then I saw another interesting pshat, which I think is a very modern phenomenon, more than we've ever had any more. Uh, I think it's with the khidaw. He says that, there's a Pesach, I think, that says All koshos. It's in the nature of wealthy people to be brazen, to be bold. You know, you got the money you flaunted. You know, to be a peacock. Poor people are always very humble. You know, you, you always think of the poor schlepper in the back who always was... He's living on handouts, so he's very much into, you know, being humble and, you know, everything is a gift to him. Pnei Adorka is going to be this brazeness amongst the poor people where they're going to demand entitlements. It belongs to them. Sekumtuns. You're not giving me enough. We're going to march, you know, this entitlement program, that entitlement program, you're not doing enough, you're not doing your share. They're going to demand it with, a, with this Azus, with this chutzpah. Again, chutzpah really becomes the, the, the title of the whole generation. But Pnei HaDok then represents the fact that w- that's going to be a reversal of roles, where you're going to have the poor people going out there and marching and say, it's mine, and you owe it to me, and you, we deserve it, and you got to give it to me. And for what? I mean, this massive entitlements that we have nowadays, and not only that, but the massive demands for entitlements, and the brazenness that comes with it, the chutzpah and the total boldness with this lack of you know, sense of humility, where they just attack and feel that, I mean, you go on and on through the programs, whatever the case is. But this, by the way, applies to the Jewish world as well. It applies in people's families, where you no longer have children feeling their parents, you know, a certain respect to their parents that they're getting. But they demand more and more. And there's this constant demanding wine that people in the generation are going to have, and poor people as well. It's entitlements. This, I think, is a very unique phenomenon to, to, to our generation, which I don't think we've seen in previous generations to such an extent. I saw yeah. once a more Musr de Gipshat on it, which I guess could be applied to other generations as well. The, um... The Chaim gives the following muscle. guy goes to um, a hick from a small town, and he comes into a train station for the first time in his life, and he sees a train, and he sees this guy standing over there in a booth with a cap on and a uniform, and he pulls on the bell, whistle, whistle, aboard, and all of a sudden everybody starts running onto the train. Okay, you have a few Choshvet dignitaries that walk slow so they don't run he makes second call all aboard train's gonna pull out guys you could be a dignitary but you wanna get on the train they start running and you know you're gonna miss the train so whatever you walk like you're walking slow but all of a sudden you're running to get on the train finally says that's it last call train's pulling out pulls the bell blows the whistle train starts pulling out people that are late you could be the most a person in the world you're running after the train stop that train it's a gate it doesn't stop for you nothing it goes on guy was, what a remarkable person. This guy's leading trains, and he's doing all kinds of, of things over here. I wonder how he does it. So he goes over to him, and he says, uh, sir, your honor, can your eminence please explain to me uh, why you decided the train should leave exactly at 1042, and when it's going to go on the next train. How do you make these decisions, and wow, you're such a, like, you know, you, one blow, two blows, the bus. How, how does it all work? Explain it to me. The guy's looking at this guy like, He's asking me questions. I don't know what he's talking about. He's calling me your honor, your eminence, sir, and all kinds of uh, laudatory phrases. So he hops that the guy, you know. He says, me? I, I don't make up train schedules. He says, you don't? And I see you're blowing things and everything else. He says, are you kidding? I'm sitting here in a small booth. If I'd be making up, I wouldn't be sitting over here. The, the boss, the guy that lives in that skyscraper next door in top of the World Trade Center in that penthouse suite, He's the one that owns all the trains. He makes the decisions. He sits in a leather-bound chair in a mahogany-paneled office with a dozen secretaries, and he smokes big cigars. You don't get to see him. You want to know the answers to your questions, you've got to go speak to the boss. He's sitting up there in that office on top of that uh, building over there. He says, we're living in a society where when people want to know why are things happening, we keep running over to the conductor, to the guy that's doing it. The guy that seems to be doing it. But he's not the one making the decisions. The decisions are made by the boss. The boss sits upstairs. We don't see him. He's sitting up all the way upstairs is where the boss sits. And in that tower up there he makes all the decisions and he just gives the message over to the conductor what to do, when to do it. Hoy asher shevet api says the Navi. Hashem is saying behold Syria, staff of my wrath. We think Sanchev or Ashur exiles the Jews, or Bovel, whoever it is, exiles the Jews. They're the cause. That's not the cause. The cause is Hashem. This is just a rod or a staff in His hand. You take a stick and you throw it, and the dog starts chasing after it. He gets all caught up with the stick as if the stick is moving. It's the person that's doing it. Dog starts chasing the car, you know. Bicycle runs by. He barks at it. Look at the first cause. uh, In Muser works, it's called... Kelvin and his spirals. a dog's uh, amazement—you know, like you know—you you know, you hear a loud noise, you immediately turn around. You know, you hear a boom. A lack of control, like you know, the way a dog will do, right? You make a noise, here's per cup. You know, he always goes to that first cause, with a lack of understanding and a lack of realization that there are deeper root causes behind all this, and the real boss that's running the, that's throwing the stick. Or using the stick to whack us is sitting upstairs. And these guys are just the sticks. people will not be able to attribute things to Hashem. They'll be like dogs attributing it to the immediate cause. This, by the way, is the key to understanding the Khat Gadya. Right? The kid is eaten by the cat, bit by the dog, dog's hit with the stick, fire puts out the stick, water puts out the fire. Or out of the fire burns right. the stick, water puts out the fire, ox drinks the water, man slaughters the ox, Malchamovus kills the man, God slaughters the Malchamovus. You have to be able to attribute everything to its original cause and realize the progression. Don't get caught up in the dog and the stick scenario where all you see is a stick hitting a dog and that's where it ends. You got to know, there's this point beyond the stick and it goes back and back and back to Akkadesh Baruch. Hu. He's the one that's running the show, he sits upstairs, he's making all the schedules. And obviously even the implication of the Chad Gadya is of course, Tchiyas HaMesim and Mashiach. Hashem Shech the Maloch this is what Mashiach is about. But Pnei and are going to be like dogs and stop in the middle, not realizing that it goes further back. So here you have seven Pshatim and Pnei and Pnei Let's now go a little bit wider. What? Let's go down a little bit on on the um, lower parts of the page. Tanya. Tanya Rabb. Yes. Tanya Rabb, Nuhuroy Oimer. Dorsha Ben Dovid Boboy. And again, you'll notice that there's a common theme to all of this. The youth will mock their elders, make fun of them. It seems to be a different point. Namely that the elders will have to arise before the youth. Whereas Rashi says, to give them honor and respect. All of a sudden, rather than respecting elders, there's going to be a whole youth culture where everybody respects youth. And even old people stand up before youth and everything is to be young, to be young again, right? But not only because you want to be young and look young physically and everything else, and you want to get rid of that dog face, you know, those dog lines. No, but not, but not only you want to look young, but all of a sudden you respect the younger blood. Like, you know, rather than the elders having any kind of respect, oh, well, he's young and he's still good and he still has it, right? There's a whole youth culture. You know, I don't remember... Of course, if I remember, you, you people for sure remember. Maybe one exception in this room. Back in the 60s, right? What do they say? Don't trust anyone over 30? it was? Don't trust anyone over 30. The entire youth culture that develops, that we still have remnants of that, where where it's actually, El, old people get up before the youth. It became topsy-turvy that the honor and the respect is shown to youthfulness rather than to Zokin Kwan Chokhmah. Well, the best example of that was uh, today. General Motors. The old timers in General Motors who are running billion dollar corporations had to do what the guys, the 30 year old yuppies in Wall Street said they should do. Otherwise, they'll lose the company. Yeah. And they listened to, they they said. The truth is, the word yuppie even implies that. The idea of yuppie, it's going to be a world of yuppies. Okay. Young, upwardly mobile. Right? they're the ones that, that are up. But to be a yuppie, if you're going to be an opie, and on the you know, you don't have that. That's a poppy method. That what? That's a poppy. Now, yeah. Poppy. <laughs> you you may have had these kind of things in other generations, but I don't know if we've ever had it to the extent that we have it today. The whole idea of this youth culture, even. Let's go weiter. Bas komo kalo Daughters get up, rebel against their mothers. Strangely enough, daughter-in-laws against mother-in-laws. Can you imagine? There used to be a time when mother-in-laws were actually respected, but uh, we don't even know from such things. But I guess what that somewhat also indicates is again it says here, pneya Again it's repeated, pneya dor and being ashamed and having any kind of feelings of of bushel. No more. It's going to be a total generation of boldness and brazenness, where people just don't care. But it also seems to indicate something else, which I, which seems to be here as well, namely that you're going to have a total breakdown of the family structure, where families start breaking down. You know, it was always everything was always the nuclear family. The nuclear family was always the key to all of society, and there's going to be a destruction of the nuclear family where it disintegrates. Parental authority disintegrates, there's no longer any parental authority, this whole family structure breaks down. I mean, we see that now in terms of the tremendous divorce rate, the tremendous amount of single parenting that's going on, and certainly in the larger society you see it, that where, where you have in certain communities over 50% of children are born out of wedlock, I mean it's, it's mind-boggling, it's frightening. That's an indication to the rest of society as well. Well, there's a breakdown of the family structure. The family unit is no longer there. You know, in the old days you'd have three or four generations sort of like living in close proximity. You no longer have that anymore. There's a breakdown of parental authority. The whole family unit is breaking, is what it's saying over here as well. Let's go weiter. Tanya in the first wide line. So again, the same idea. Tirba. There's gonna be an increase of Azus. Right? Which seems to be the common theme that runs through everything. Yuvas. Rashi says two psum on that. One is that there's gonna be a total lack of respect between people. People just don't give it. you know, there used to be a time when there was a certain amount of etiquette, a breakdown in etiquette. Then Rashi says another shot. Not only a breakdown in etiquette, but the people that are at the positions of power, or the people that are considered the most distinguished people, are going to be degenerate and corrupt. There's going to be corruption at the top, at the upper echelons of society. So Rashi says, "Hayoki was The people that are the most respected, you know. The Kennedy name, Camelot, right? The most respected name. Afsun Veramai is a thief, a cheat, and a liar. And, you know, you you keep finding right and left how the people that are supposed to be the most respected people are the ones that are the biggest, most corrupt people. The corruption of the leadership, the corruption at the top. And this, we see, permeates every segment of society, whether business, politics, politics. Moral leadership even, religious leadership, you know, elected officials, corporate officials, whatever, whatever you know, segment of society you're talking about, whether it's you know, the business world, whether it's uh, the mob, well, the mob, yeah, well, but the mob is, lives on that over there. <laughs> yeah. That's what they're all about. But in the sense that, you know, you go to every segment of society, and that's what you see. You see that total corruption of the leadership were these things unique to our times but you see again the flavor of the whole Gemara is to say what is the situation of life before Mashiach comes and some of it is very very telling next one is an interesting one the vine will give forth a great deal of its fruit but wine is going to still be very expensive so why is that so look at Rashi's second chapter, what's it's underlined at the bottom. She'i kulon reitfin achar On top of the page now, on the left side. U'mishtakrin. And be drunk. Everybody's going to be pursuing after good times, you know. Or well, Rashi says, Satan, there's going to be a lot of partying going on. People are going to be what we call party animals. And as a result, although it's going to be plentiful, it's going to be a society of great plenty, Nevertheless, wine is going to be very expensive because although there's so much of it, people are going to be constantly drunk and seeking. There's going to be a lot of addiction. There's going to be rampant addiction where people are just constantly yearning for the pursuit of the good life, partying, trying to just get more and more pleasure. And as a result of that, although technically there should be a lot of that stuff around, although let's say poppies and, you know, you think about some of the stuff that they use for drugs, are in and of themselves, you know, have no real other function and shouldn't be very expensive, but it's still going to be very expensive. I mean, take a look how true it is in terms of how much people spend for cocaine and marijuana and any of the stuff that's going on in society. It's very expensive. And there's, you keep hearing about 10 tons was just picked up off the coast of Florida. 20 tons was just where they sent a bunch of planes over to Columbia and they discovered huge fields of coca leaves which leaves are worthless there's plenty of it I mean, the world is able to produce a lot of it and the opium in the from the uh, what's it called the golden triangle out there in china wherever that stuff is located it's not like there's a famine or a drought why it should be expensive the reason why it's expensive is precisely because there's such a the tremendous demand for it well, there's a tremendous supply but the demand is even greater that's what the gomorrah is saying here that it's not like that god is going to bring a drought And that's why it's going to be expensive, because it's very valuable, because it's very rare. It's not rare at all. It's going to be tons of the stuff. But the demand to get drunk, the demand to get a high, the demand for addiction is going to be so great that it's going to shoot up the prices, and whether it's crack or drugs, cocaine, marijuana, all the things that give people pleasure and give them highs is going to be very expensive. It's a very fascinating thing that the Gemara is saying over here how the things that lead to addiction are going to be plentiful, but the demand for for good times and for addiction and for drunkenness and for getting on a high is going to be so great that it's going to cause the value to uh, to go so high, skyrocketing price. Again, you know, I just think it's... This is another one over here. V'ne'abcha ha'malchus liminus the entire generation is going to turn to Minus. versus is Minus? versus is Minus. So here Eddie could tell us about six hours worth and what exactly a Min is because we've spent a lot of time on discussing a Min. Min, maybe in a nutshell, would be to let's say atheism. The Zohar says it slightly differently. It says that there's going to be a period of time for a period of whatever months or whatever it is where the entire uh, empire is going to be full of minus before it falls apart. You're going to have an empire of, that promotes actively atheism, an atheistic empire, which before it crumbles. Russia. Yeah, I remember that. That it's funny though because I remember the prediction of the Zohar before Russia fell apart. And you know, people are always talking about Russia being the evil empire, and how Russia is the only. I mean, the first empire in in civilization, that actually promotes atheism. To actually promote atheism. And it's going to have to crumble. Which, of course, we now did see it crumble. Um, There are those that say... So, in any case, however you're going to describe it, it's going to mean that there's going to be rampant atheism, and there's going to be a state-sanctioned atheism. Which is very interesting when you think about that even in the United States of America, they've understood the separation of church and state to mean not that the state shouldn't promote a particular religion, but the state has to do anything in its power to avoid any mention of religion, where if a guy gets up at a graduation speech and uses the word God, it's now going to the Supreme Court saying that it's unconstitutional to mention God in a speech. This by the way was true for a time in Israel as well, where the Knesset was almost verboten to say God's wo- name. So an active, state-sponsored atheism is what it's saying over here. There are some interesting pshatim, though, that say that the word Minus was used in those days, in the time of the Gomorrah, to refer to Christianity. Because Min really means sectarian, which is what the Christians were. They were a form of denial of God from the way we understand God as a clique, as a sect. Sectarians. So... I saw even amongst um, so-called scholarly works where they say this of course was referring to those days not to our days and it's referring to Rome and the Roman Empire being the Malchus how Rome is going to turn Christian so they said it's amazing how it was predicted because this was written about 200 years before Rome adopted Christianity because it's a, it's a Brisa so this is from who is it? Reb Nachman right Reb Nehemia this was a couple of hundred years before Rome actually adopted Christianity and the Malchus Napchaliminus where it was predicted that the Empire, the Roman Empire in those days is going to accept Christianity. Whatever, but the point is let's take it in the modern context which then means atheism state sponsored atheism. This obviously was true in Russia but to, to an extent it's probably true in America as well and definitely was true for a good period of time in Israel now Israel wants to, the labor party wants to make a separation of church and state as well in Israel then again there's an interesting pshat in this which fits into the theme that we've been discussing the past couple of weeks Messiah <speaking in Hebrew> Rabbi the Omer Rabbi Yitzchak, Mashiach won't come till the entire empire turns to Minus what proof of there is this from the Pusik? So it says like this um, There's an interesting medish. The meddash says that in all of the symptoms of leprosy are indications of different periods of calls. Now in leprosy we find four kinds of toldos of leprosy. Leprosy of course is going to be some sort of a skin disease which causes a discoloration of sorts. So there are four different colors, different degrees of whiteness, or whatever the case may be. I'm a coin, so I should know about saras, but unfortunately I don't. No, maybe fortunately I don't, because we haven't had situations where you have to know about it. In any case, the gumor over there says, Baheras Zubovel. No, Seis Zubovel, Sapachas, that's another form of leprosy. That's Modai, Paheras, Ziovon, negatsarasu. That's Rome. Now, one of the signs of leprosy, the way it works is as follows. guy has a sign of leprosy, so what they do is they have to lock you up. You're locked up and you're imprisoned. You're in you're prison for a while. They then examine you a couple of weeks later. If the leprosy spreads then you're locked up again because spreading of leprosy is a sign of tum, of being tomay of being impure. However, if it spreads to the point where every square inch of your body is leprous, your tohar, they let you out. But if the entire person is full of leprosy, you're let out. In other words, although pisyon although the spread of leprosy is a sign of tum and you're locked up for it, the complete um, domination of leprosy over the body is a symptom to allow you to go free so based on the Midrashic um, connection to Golos, which is that when you have the signs of leprosy, you're locked up you're imprisoned in Golos, same idea as long as it's in the ascendancy stage you're still in Golos. The moment that leprosy dominates totally and atheism has t- totally taken over, you're all white, you're all leprous, you're released. How does that work? I guess it fits into what we've been talking about the past couple of weeks. Namely the whole idea that once you reach a level of tumor that's so tame that there is no other hope, that's when Hashem comes down in a supernatural manner and lifts us up and makes a tar. So therefore it's the same idea that when the moral decay and corruption has reached its zenith the point that it can't go any further and there is no other hope that's when it's going to bring Mashiach that's when Mashiach comes so what about that question that I asked you answer it? no no. Maybe maybe no we seem to have again there, there seems to be a kind of of two things that are th- th- that seem to be working concurrently one that's going down but again that's another Gemara and another doubt we're not going to get into that maybe so, one so, so where do we get the what? concept that doing mitzvahs brings well, again, that—that—that—that's that, yeah. Phil's question. It's an excellent question, but it's—it's it's something which has to be understood. Well, let's let's skip a line or so. Ain ben David bohat sheirbu ha mesiris. Told there's going to be a lot of Messira. Messira is when Jews squeal on other Jews mm-hmm. or people in general think. In other words, it's gossip so, columns. you just said. Yeah. So Why do you? Why do you why don't we try to promote more more leprosy? That's certainly much easier. I hear. I'm saying I hear that the question is a valid question. May I venture, I guess? Okay. May I venture, I guess? That's good. Sure. Sure. Do all the bad stuff. Mashiach will come. But that doesn't mean you're going to get rewarded for doing your bad stuff. you got to earn your brownie points. One has nothing to do with the other. Yes, Mashiach will come. Of course, yeah <laughs> make sure. No, what, what happens, I think is is that there's going to be a core of people that's still going to be maintaining the right approach. Uh-huh. In spite of all of this that's going around them, therefore they're going to be worthy of it, Our myths has become much more valuable as a result of all the deterioration around us. For care. Because of the deterioration, our myths become much more significant. But what you have over here, there's going to be a tremendous amount of what we call malshinus. In fact, there's a whole bracha made, v'lamalshin, added and the Shimon Esra, because of this kind of gossip mongering. I mean, what's interesting is I think we're living... to the Shimon because of the Possibly, yeah. That was an extra bracha. Yeah. The idea, I mean, I, I guess, you know, nowadays we do have much more of this as well. I'm sure you've all heard of the expression of um, kiss-and-tell autobiographies for biographies, right? Where everybody, in order to make a buck, what you do is you just write a book. Again, it fits into everything else we've been saying about the lack of modesty, the total uh, breakdown of shame. But where you're going to tell everything about the other person. Malshinus, you know, everything. You you have that in families as well. You could have given just like... It probably would have applied, but only now could we see how wrong we would have been 20 years ago, how far yeah, things have sank. They say, uh, each generation got much worse. It. I'm sorry? got much worse.
1: No. He's it's saying 20 years government ago, government, 20 years ago
0: no one would have written about John F. Kennedy, what he's been doing in his White House, what they do now, because there was a certain sense of respect. There was still respect. Now there's a total breakdown. They I've heard I've heard them say it That's I've heard the people the saying that in those days had they have known they would have kept their mouths still because they knew about other presidents doing all kinds of other things and they didn't say there was a certain mark of respect that they just didn't do this wasn't the kind of thing that you people that have uh, President uh, Roosevelt couldn't walk he, pre- he had the entire right, his, right entire fourth election campaign was from a wheelchair and nobody in the United States knew it And that's because the newspapers refused to publish it. Woodrow Wilson, I think, for a period was a little bit crazy. But nine months, his wife was running the country, and again, they didn't talk about it. This is the way it was. I mean, take a look. I don't know. Twenty years ago, there might have been a National Enquirer, but I don't think that there was. uh, I don't don't even know the names, but the the National Tattler and the Tattletale and this, the the, the total dissemination of gossip. of gossip those days. Yeah, those days? Okay. Those days. Each, but that's what I'm I, saying. Each generation I didn't, say, I didn't say that everything is exclusive to our generations. I'm saying in our generation we see to what extent all of this is happening. Where you have, you know, you have, I mean, every newspaper already features a gossip column. You have a whole magazine called People Magazine just to talk about people. You know, you would not have this kind of stuff then. I remember a number of years ago I was reading an, uh, a column that that also was a little bit of an illustration of this. In one of the Jewish periodicals, where a I think it was a Reform rabbi was writing in about uh, they were making a serial on television then I think it was on television on Minis or whatever called the Holocaust Holocaust five part <coughs> series whatever it is. Shaw. No, not Shaw. No, Shaw uh, was a guy in the in Holocaust movie oh, oh, oh. Holocaust. And like. they wanted it to be realistic. So they wanted to make it very realistic. So there was one was question about having it in color, because maybe the concentration camps really should be better. It's more realistic if it's not in color, and having the, you know, the uniform not be so bright. So one of the things was showing Jews going into gas chambers. So they wanted to show the people walking into the gas chambers nude, because it's realistic. The question is, this is on television. So it's on television. So you want to uh, have everything real? You know, you, you can't have everything. It's, it's family you know, matter, material. So this Reform rabbi said, no, it's important. It's more important that people should realize the horror of the Holocaust and they could appreciate it more by actually seeing how they have to walk into the gas chambers nude because that gives it a more of a realistic flavor of it. And let people see it. And true, okay, so it defends you, let it offend you, but it's worthwhile for the realistic aspect of it. That's what some reformed rabbi wrote it in. And I remember when I read it then, I was thinking to myself how he reveals a lot about his own spiritual makeup when he says that. The argument sounds great, you know, on, on one level, until you take it a step further. I mean, I remember my mother was telling me stories about one of the things that they did in the concentration camps, and I guess since this is not a family thing, I could talk to you people. They would allow you once a day to go to the bathroom for uh, what we call gedolim, for, you know, bowel movements. But one of the things that they did was to totally demean the human being was they would give you like 5-10 seconds to be there. So you would go in, sit down on the stall, and then the Gestapo guy would start coming and make everybody leave. Right in the middle. You can imagine where you're holding at that point. You can imagine where you're holding. And you can imagine what a human being feels like when he's made to leave then and walk out and everybody else, I mean, it is so demeaning to the human being, it's it's unbelievable. How come they don't show that on television? I mean, if you want reality, you want to know what the Nazis did to people? You want to know all the horrible things? Show them how they bayoneted children. I mean, you could do trick photography. What? Well, they would take target practice. they take kids, throw them up in the air and try catching them on bayonets. Babies. Or they would take babies and literally throw them against the wall. Infants, throw up in the air, catch them on, why not show that on television? You want realism? You want people to feel what went on then? Show that. No one says that. Show nudity on television for realism. Because nudity doesn't bother you. If it doesn't bother you, you could say, let's show it for realism purposes. It's an indication of where your moral stature is that you make such an argument. (coughs) Because you wouldn't make it about something else. But the point is that we're living in a society where I think gossip-mongering, where even in the most reputable of papers, it's already more or less accepted to constantly talk bad about one another. A total breakdown of Mesira, of malshinus An era of exposés, where everything is, whether it's magazines or books, biographies, or even autobiographies, everything is an exposé of someone else to uncover, to reveal, to, to knock the previous presidents and other great people, and the truth is some of them need that. Um, they could use a little bit of knocking down, but the fact is that we're living in an era of where it's considered nothing anymore. There used to be a sense of, uh, of some sort of... Uh, withholding of um, either as a result of modesty or bush of some sort where people didn't do this kind of thing but we're now living in an era where it became something totally disregarded and something totally acceptable to uh, gossipmonger and to uh, expose and to write biographies of exposes of the worst things that people have done and said and, and the greatest level of malshinus furthermore says another pshat lavarach till the puta, the lowest coin that's like a penny is gone from the from the purse, from the pocket Um, on one level I mean the Poshet Pshat, the way Rashi seems to indicate is that it refers to that the times are going to be so trying the recession is going to be so great that I suppose that even wealthy people will be shortchanged to the point of where they don't have pennies in their pocket uh, just maybe on a more uh, contemporary level, one can understand this a little bit. See, the Gemara doesn't say that there's going to be starvation. It's not talking here in terms of starvation. It just as that the situation that people are going to be so cash short, so strapped for cash, that they won't have anything either, kiss could be referring on a larger sense to a savings account, where people will no longer have savings account. There's no longer going to be available cash or disposable income maybe you'll have food on your table, maybe you'll still have a roof over your head but people are going to be so strapped for cash that their savings account will be totally emptied out and even in their pockets, they won't have extra money for anything, for anything extra they'll lose all their cash, uh, Someone was just recently telling me how um, he bought in one day and he sold the next, he bought eleven condominiums that were Prime, prime condominiums in Brooklyn, uh, they were going for $150,000 originally, so he bought a one-bedroom, the one-bedroom once went for $15,000, two bedrooms went for $20,000, and the next day he sold it for $20,000 and for $30,000, so he said that's way below market value, because even now it could be sold for much more, so I asked him, why'd you hang on to it, so he said, well, although he knows he could sell it on the retail market for more, but he needed the cash. He says he has enough real estate as it is. He says if you could hang on to the real estate that he already has long enough, he'll be a multi-millionaire. The problem is he doesn't have cash to meet the month-by-month expenses. So he needs the cash even though he, it's a sacrifice. He said that he wasn't even sure if he could sell for this price. But then what happened was he, he called up a bunch of people, and they said they're not sure because they're also strapped for cash. When he finally sold it, he got back five calls from different people that they wanted to buy, that they were willing to do it. The point is, everyone is so strapped for cash that they make these kind of sacrifices because they don't have the, the disposable income. Uh, either a result of the situation, they're all leveraged out, or because people have all of their money in, whether it's in real estate, in their homes, and everything else. But the put of the coins, the actual cash, is no longer available. No longer do they have savings accounts, no longer do people have have money available. All of their value, all of their income, all of their net worth is already either leveraged out, or it's in their homes, it's in their condominiums, it's in their co-ops, whatever it is. But they no longer have cash. It's, it's, a, it's a cash short economy. Tich in a kiss. The uh, Rishash has a very interesting pshat, which he says it one way, we can extend it a little bit further. His pshat is that that the word kiss is used, he says, in the Gomorrah subas, to refer to the pushka. The pushka, in other words, what you give tzedakah. He says, usually you find that uh, people always give, we, we find the expression used in chazal very often, to give a puto, lo'oni, to give the pennies to the poor person. Sure, all comes, you give the, them the lowest denominations. The pushka comes around, no one's watching, so what do you put in the pushka? It used to be that you put in the pushka the, the pennies. The pushkas are always full of pennies. He said, "There's going to be. There come a time. He's saying it because of wealth, that no longer will people give their smallest ndovah. Will no longer be a pruta. You're going to look into the pushkas, You won't see pennies there anymore. It's going to be nickels, dimes, quarters, half dollars, dollars. But no longer a penny is going to be thrown into the pushka. Even though no one really sees what goes there. No longer a penny is going to be given as an ndovah to a poor person. Tichla pruta min meaning from the pushka, that that the coin, the pruta." the penny will, will have so little value, either as a result of wealth, or let's extend it as a result of inflation. In the olden days, people valued prutas. A pruta went a long way. A pruta was considered, a, uh, although it was the smallest denomination, but it had a certain value, and, and it was considered. It was of considerable value. People cared about it. There used to be a time in America also, where people cared about, cared about penny change, and a penny bought things. A pruta you used to give to the uh, to the Ani, it was an edovah, it had some value. There's going to come a time when people will no longer give this kind of a donation, because it's valueless. He says it as a result of wealth, but it's also true in terms of inflation. No longer do you give a pruta to a poor person, he throws it back into your face. Nowadays, if you give him less than $18, they'll throw it back at you. But the point is that the pruta is already gone as an edovah, it won't be found into the pushka anymore. Um, One could extend it to refer to inflation in general, and and therefore the word kiss could mean your pocket. You know, you come home at night, what do you do? You right away empty out your pocket of all those pennies. The pennies are just dead weight. They seem to have no value. No one seems to care for pennies anymore. So what do you do when you come home? You immediately empty your pockets, and you throw out all the change, all the pennies. You throw them into wherever you put them into. But, uh, kiss in your pocketbook, in your purse, you no longer want to carry around pennies. Pennies are dead weight. Inflation has been so great that you, th- that you're just carrying around dead weight that seems to have no value. You want to get rid of it. On, a, on a another level, we can say that this extends to the point of where the coin, the penny, is in danger of extinction. In Israel, certainly was. Israel, of course, is where all of these simonim are considered to be major um, indications of Mashiach. And, of course, we know that in Eretz Yisrael, inflation has been so great to the point of where where, a number of times they devalued things to the point of where they where they allowed whatever pruta existed to disappear even nowadays um, with nushkol and whatever it is, but the agura is gone when you want to get change, change doesn't come in in one agura denomination, it comes in five or ten or or fifty, whatever it is, but you no longer get one agura it's gone five is the minimum the even you know it used to be ninety nine dollars and ninety nine cents. In Israel, you don't have that. You don't have ninety nine aguros uh, for a sale or something ninety eight. Uh, it's no longer one agur. It's gone. Tichle pruta The pruta is already gone as a coin, as a result of inflation. So another pshat I saw. It's a pshat, but uh, it's a nice pshat anyway. Tichle pruta min kiss Kis referring to the person's heart, where he. That's the heart of the person. Pruta comes from the notion of proteus, individualism, being, being selfish, being your own, or re- either referring to self-centeredness and selfishness, or to, or to the fractionalization that we talked about earlier, the factionalism, that proteus, when Jews will finally unite and come together as one, rather than each person being his own and having his own viewpoints and his own selfish interests, his own self-interests. Let's take another part of the Gemara now says and that says the Gemara until people actually um, feel so depressed or they give up hope totally of ever having redemption as if they're saying that the Jews will never be redeemed Now, let's take this part of the Gemara first separate from the next part, because the next part tells us a slightly different idea. I think this is a very important point in general, because we're in in danger of having this come about again. Very often, we find this historically, it happened in the time of the Rambam, when he writes in the Eger, it's people were telling him there's these false Mashiachs, or they thought it was real, and the Rambam said that they are false Mashiachs, and he says, listen, let's face it, there's, we're not going to know when Mashiach is going to come. We know that even when Hakodesh Baruch, who told us when we, that we're going to come out of Mitzrayim, the first goal was supposed to be 400 years, and nevertheless, people made mistakes. We know that people made mistakes. They didn't have the calculation right. They didn't know exactly how to count it. As a result, B'nai Ephraim left Mitzrayim 30 years early. They were massacred. They were wiped out. And disillusionment sets in as a result. People will then say, HaKadosh Baruch was not gonna redeem what he said four hundred years, it's over and done with, it's gone. But over there we know that Hashem said four hundred years, and nevertheless they made mistakes, and when people tried to work out calculations, they it misfired and it backfired, and then a depression and a disillusionment set in, which which of course leads to all kinds of terrible things, to depression, to loss of faith, and all kinds of problems. The second goals goals bovel Yirmiah said a calculation of 70 years. 70 years, very small time frame, pretty easy to figure out. Even so, mistakes were made, whether it was from the rise of the Babylonian Empire, the fall, the first part of the exile, the second part, the destruction of the temple. How to calculate was also a very difficult thing. As we know, Achashverosh calculated in the third year of his reign, the 70 years is up, and he made a, a uh, party. Now we know that the Jews were sorely punished as a result of joining the party of Achashverosh. One would think, what's so terrible that it should be such a terrible sin to join a party with? Gaiman? you go to a New Year's party. No, New, New Year's is not such a good thing for a Jew to join. But I mean, does Hashem? Do we deserve to have a homun who wants to commit total genocide of the Jewish people, resulting from going to the New Year's party? What was so terrible about the party of Achashverosh that the Jews joining them was an indication that they deserved? a total kind of catastrophe, such as Homo. And the answer was because Ahasuerus calculated that the 70 years is up, and therefore Yirimiya's prophecy isn't coming true. He took out the clay Migdash, the vessels, the utensils for the base Migdash, but he was no longer scared for the Jews to uh, join a party, celebrating their own demise, celebrating their own permanent downfall, never to be redeemed. That's a terrible thing. That means that, and perhaps one could even reverse it. How do we know that even the Nachashverish is the have made the calculation? Maybe the Jews made the calculation and Nachashverish learned from the Jews. Nowadays, you read in the papers already how, um, how the newspapers are already picking up that certain Jews are claiming that Mashiach is here or is imminently coming. When you start publicizing these things and the to pick up on it, and all of a sudden it doesn't work out, and Mashiach doesn't come, this illusion sets in. And... It's quite possible that something like that occurred then, or even if it didn't, but we could definitely anticipate that kind of, uh, of a pattern, that the Jews make a calculation as to when Yermia's prophecies were going to come about after 70 years, and Achashverosh also was interested in, in trying to work out this calculation, and once they determined that there's no longer going to be a guru, there's no longer going to be a redemption, he celebrated. The, the disillusionment that's set in amongst the Jews caused them to join in with Ahasuerus in this party. And they joined the party that's celebrating their own downfall. That's a terrible thing. But it results from a disillusionment of Achei Yisyash and Agula, where they feel that all is lost and they uh, they will no longer be redeemed. We know that this happened again later on. Says the Rambam, so what do we see? We see from all of this that Hashem tells us a clear calculation of 400 years 70 years and even then they make mistakes so how could we possibly make calculations on a goal on the goals where Hashem himself said it's not revealed it's closed it's sealed there is no time that you're going to figure it out and we're still trying to figure it out we could only lead ourselves to tragedy we know tragedy occurred we know that as a result of the um the Khmelniki uprisings in 1648 49 it set the stage for a messianic yearning amongst the jewish people which Shabzai in 1666 capitalized upon utilizing his kinds of things and as a result of that the jews were placed on a high and then all of a sudden when he was proven to be a false Mashiach calamity we have no idea as to the ramifications that we're suffering to this very day from that debacle just to mention a few of them in the first place Right off the bat, a number of Jews converted with Shop 6V in the thousands. And, and there was a Sabbatean uh, sect in Albania, Greece, wherever it is, that lasted up until World War One. A sect, sect of neo or quasi-Jews, quasi-Muslims. A lot of Jews smarted up. Obviously, and the depression that set was also terrible. But besides that... There was suspicion, and there was factionalism. As a result, there was persecution. The Ramchal was persecuted in the early 1700s as a result of Sabbatean suspicions. The the, the famous Machlokes fight between between Rabbi Anis and I-Bishitz and Rabbi Yaakov Emden resulted from all this, and of course the suspicions, perhaps even the the first stirrings of of uh, well, first of all, there was also the Frankist movement, which was terrible and and I think it was in Prague, in the 1700s, that also resulted from Shab V again wreaking havoc amongst the Jews, and as a result, a reaction set into all of this. Well, you had on the one hand, you had, uh, you had Hasidus arise, which is partially due to all of this, but you have the reaction to Hasidus, the Hisnagdus to Hasidus, resulted from great measure because of the suspicion that there was certain Shab Tzvi, um stirrings amongst them, and there was a lot of suspicion. Which, of course, led to fights, and bitter fights, and strife, and all kinds of, of terrible things that happened for hundreds of years amongst the Jews fighting. To a great extent, the Enlightenment, and this is a topic in itself, but the Enlightenment and the uh, Reform Movement, Mendelssohn and the Haskalah, was a reaction to the disappointment that's set in by uh, Shabzi Tzvi. There was an anti kabola backlash. A lot of people were very much against Kabola as a result of the Shabzi Tzvi movement because he based himself to a great extent a lot on Kabbalah. So that in itself was something that there was this backlash against Kabola. But the Haskolad the masculinity, the, they started also with the anti kabola mentality, but it extended to the whole giving up hope. They give up hope. We have to be very careful that whenever there is this great messianic steerings and yearnings where people are expecting it, and then disillusionment sets in, terrible disappointment follows, and catastrophe ensues. It's it's calamitous for the Jews. So we have to be aware of that. And people can actually come into a yush and it's a depression that sets in. That's why we have to be very careful in general when we talk about, you know, I mean, after all, people imagine that, well, the Holocaust, Mashiach has to come. You, you can't go with that kind of an approach. You have to for, you have to have Hessechadas as the next part of the Gemara says. He says over here, He says two things. Number one, this is in the Gemara if Mashiach requires or not. So the Mashiach says, either what the Gemara is trying to tell us is that the situation, the moral climate and the persecution is going to be so great that it's going to somehow bring about tshuva because we know that the one thing that brings tshuva is when Jews are persecuted the persecution, the decay, the deterioration of society will be enough to cause the Jews to do tshuva and then therefore Mashiach will come and it says according to the other man that says that tshuva is not a prerequisite that's what it means also that they're going to be miyayish from the gula that we're going to be so downtrodden so much depressed, so down that we'll say it's impossible that we should ever get redemption then Mashiach going to come. But what's important is the next part of the Gemara. The Gemara says that, uh, and this, this is a theme that's repeated throughout, Kihot Rabzeir, whenever Rabzeir found rabbis engaging in, in trying to figure out when Mashiach coming, so he would tell them, please, I beg of you, stop your calculations, don't make it go further away from us. Don't make it more distant. The Sanya, Gimel, Boy and Behesa, Chadas, three things come as a result of, not th- of, of no thought to it. Meshiach comes when you least expected a mitziah. What's a mitziah? A find. By definition, you can only find something when you're not expecting it. If you're searching for it, you're not, then you're doing something, and then you expect to find it. A find means that it's something which is unplanned for and unnatural. The third thing is an Akrov, a scorpion. Scorpions you don't look for. You put on your shoes, you didn't check your shoes beforehand, you didn't think about it, and all of a sudden you get yourself a scorpion bite. Because you weren't prepared for it, a mitzvah you don't uh, prepare for it. it comes to you by itself. Um, it's not a natural state of events. Likewise, scorpions come about. So, what are the Gemara trying to say with this? And Masha tells us a very interesting pshat on this. He says that he says that hadas, not thinking about something. He says, Mashiach is going to come with hesach hadas." But it could come one of two ways: either by way of mitzvah, shesimcha v'tayva that it's that it's a joy to you. It's, it's, it's something good for you. It's a schus to get it. But if you're in a situation where you're not meritorious, you're not worthy, Mashiach is going to come. But it's going to come with Hesachadas the same way that the scorpion bites you. And the same way that when the scorpion bites you, it's not such a good thing for you. Mashiach could come if you're unprepared. What it's telling you is the following. It's telling you a very important yisoid. Mashiach is going to come not when you expect it, when you calculate it, or whatever it is. But if you're in the right framework, if you're in the right state of mind, you're doing the right things, then when Mashiach comes, it'll be a joy it'll be a thrill on the other hand, if you're not unprepared for it and Mashiach catches you it comes at a time when you're not expecting it that's bad, it's gonna catch you like a scorpion so we have to understand both aspects of the Gemara till people give up hope and there's Gula, we have to be careful about the depression aspect of it the truth is we have to be careful about the other aspect as well. Atzi, Shei, and Agul could be as a result of good times, not only bad times. Very often that's the worst danger, when a person has everything going real well. You just put yourself a new house and you have yourself a new car and everything is good and all of a sudden you, you don't want Mashiach to come anymore. You're, you're happy, you're content. You want to drive your Ferrari, you don't want to have to go on Eged buses anymore in Israel. You don't have to take public transportation. You don't know what you're going to live like over there. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm happy here in Golis in Westchester County without having to have Mashiach come. Actually, you see in the Hagula. But Yush could occur as a result of depression where you say, oh, it's hopeless. Or Mashiach could come when you say to yourself, you know what, I'm content and happy enough without. Both are no good. And that's what the Mashiach is telling us. That Mashiach could come like an akrov or like a Metziah. Like a fine, like a great find, or like a scorpion. What does that mean? Could you imagine if a person is learning Torah, and he's in a shear and he's learning, he has his head in a safer and all of a sudden, he hears the chauffeur blast outside. Mashiach's here. That last picture, the last picture of you in Golis, before Mashiach comes, is with your head in a safer. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Isn't that a wonderful way to be caught by Mashiach? All prepared. That's a mitzvah. That's a joy. That's a simcha. Mashiach catches you prepared. Mashiach catches you doing the right thing. You're at a, a she'er. You're learning Torah. You have your head in the safe. And you're wearing your talos and tevil, And you're davening. You're saying to him. You're doing a mitzvah. That's when Mashiach catches you. Could you imagine, on the other hand, if rather than learning, you cut the Shear and you decide to go to a Broadway show, or to a movie, or to wherever it is, and you're at a party, you with a bunch of game, and all of a sudden an announcer gets on, the thing says, uh, we have a very important announcement to make, uh, Mashiach has just arrived. Can you imagine the busyness? That last picture of you in goals, that last shot, that last frame of you in goals, Mashiach catches you at a Broadway show, in a movie theater, with the wrong crowd, with the wrong people, that's the scorpion sting. He caught you totally unaware and unprepared. Mashiach could come as a simcha, as a mitziah, it's gonna come behesachadas. It's gonna come when you're not expecting it. But better that it should come when you're not expecting it, and it should be a mitziah, than it should come like a scorpion, unprepared, but doing the wrong thing. So it's true, is gonna come behesachadas. It's not something which we can actually calculate and prepare for, but there's this different way of preparing for it. We could prepare ourselves to elevate ourselves so when Mashiach comes and he sees us it'll be a joy and it'll be a thrill to be come to Mashiach, saying hey we fulfilled our mission and our job and goals because Mashiach's gonna come whether we like it or not and if it comes and we like it then everything is wonderful but if Mashiach comes and we're unprepared and we're doing the things that we shouldn't be doing and we don't want him to come and it comes as a scorpion instinct for us it comes either because we're unprepared or because we don't want him to come either because we're disillusioned, we're too disillusioned, we gave up hope, or because we say we don't want Him to come, we're busy with our Ferraris and our, and our nice houses and enjoying ourselves and we don't want Him to come, and then He comes and it stings us when He comes. If He comes under those circumstances, that's a sting, that's a scorpion sting. Likewise, if He comes and we're prepared, we're learning. That's a gewaltiger way the last picture of us in Golas is learning. But if He comes in the last picture of us Is doing something not so nice. That's a scorpion's thing also.